All right, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, welcome, everyone. I am Kate Betts. I'm the head of education at the Bullock Texas State History Museum, and I'm so pleased to see so many of you in here on Friday afternoon after free lunch and business meeting and all the other things that you could have wanted a break from, so we're excited that you uh, came to this session. Um, I am joined by three fantastic folks over on my right. We have um, let's say in order of presentation, we have Sean Kelly, who is the Senior Vice President for Public Programming at Eastern State Penitentiary. We have David Blackburn, who is Chief of Cultural Resources and Programs at Lowell Historic Site. And we have Troy Peters, who is the Director of Programs at the Chicago Cultural Alliance, of course, in Chicago. Um, so I'm just going to do a little bit of really brief introduction, uh, but then they are going to provide you the more extended case studies for the session. And I'm going to find my notes for it. Okay. So basically what we wanna what we wanna explore today a little bit is what is the place of having discussion in a historic site about issues that our site may not directly relate to. Um, so at the Bullock we are very much newbies to this, so that's why I'm the chair only providing brief remarks rather than showing you a little bit more. Um, but so I want to show you basically what our sort of history turning point to contemporary goes to. So our programming talks about who is a Texan. So is this a Texan? How about this guy? This is Davy Crockett for any non-Texans. <laughs> How about this? Is that a Texan? How about this? This is Juan Benavides. He was a Tejano who served in the Confederate Army during the Civil War. How about this? Yeah? How about this? This is Margaret Borland. She was one of the only women who went on a cattle drive. Um, she actually died on the drive and her, her men took her home to Texas to bury her. Uh, so that's our 19th century female Texan. Uh, how about these people? These folks came to the museum for our annual World Refugee Day celebration that we have every June. Um, this is just to show you that when we are talking about dialogue at the museum, we are a state entity and we have a lot of baggage being from Texas. Um, so <laughs> when we're talking about the myth of what is Texas and the reality of what is Texas, we're trying as hard as we can to not shy away from these stereotypes that everybody has built up in their mind, um, but also to try and complicate that picture in terms of what we do. So uh, when we talk about dialogue programming at our institution, we're talking about and trying to answer that question, who is a Texan? Um, so that's about immigration, that's about identity, that's about a lot of things, but we're trying to start from something that almost everybody is familiar with, whether they believe in it or not, uh, and move on from that. And I think you're going to see that in a lot of the the programs that they're going to talk about in more detail today um, in terms of who are we talking about, what are the realities, what are the misconceptions, the myths, etc. Um, so that's really all there is for me because I don't want to take anybody else's time, but please help me welcome Sean Kelly to talk more about Eastern State Penitentiary's programs. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming. It's a real honor. Though I am not a PC person, so let's see. There we are. Oh, come on. One moment. 
Back, 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 back. Come on. All right. Um, good afternoon. Uh, I work at, I'm Sean Kelly, I work at Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. Uh, our prison was built on farmland outside of Philadelphia in 1829 um, in this, with this very radical or very uh, distinctive radial floor plan shaped like a wagon wheel. It was designed originally with the idea that people are inherently good and could be rehabilitated through a system of solitary confinement. So every inmate was housed alone. Uh, it was the world's first true penitentiary, a building designed to inspire regret, penance. Um, over time, that system of solitary confinement was copied all over the world. So here we are in Mexico City and uh, Pentonville, London. We'll talk about Pentonville again in a second. Uh, Wandsworth Prison, also in England. Here's a modern English prison. I'm stuck with the, with the British ones, but there are hundreds of these all over the world. Um, and if you play the game Sim City and you build a prison in your simulated city, it looks like this. So the building still has its architectural legacy through to today. Eventually, the system of solitary confinement developed there, though, was phased out and then completely abandoned. And so the building has a whole second history in the 20th century where the prison had prison workforce, um, survived all the way through the 1950s and 60s, uh, inmates playing football. And finally, the last of the inmates were transferred out in 1970, uh, and they closed the doors this time to keep people out. And the building sat there for 30 years while demolition plans got delayed and delayed and delayed and left us with an artifact that is um, discordant sometimes with the story what, of what actually happened there. The building is actually eerie and beautiful uh, in its own way. Here we are today, still with its distinctive uh, wagon wheel floor plan, the radial floor plan. I've been there since 1994 or 95, um, and we've been trying to tell a complex story um, about the building's history and who was there and why they were there, the kinds of people uh, who uh, end up on the wrong side of the law, end up inside of our prison, um, and trying not to forget people like the officers, um, trying to tell stories like the Jewish inmates who, uh, with support from the outside community, built what we think is the first synagogue in an American prison which looked like this in 1995. Um, we stripped it down. Those doors in the background are important. They're architecturally important. They have nothing to do with the history of Jewish life in the building, but they tell part of the architectural story, which I can tell you about later if you're interested. Um, and so we restored the synagogue. It's one of the few restored spaces on the property. Um, and sometimes we even use it for programming, let people sit on the benches, but we hid an interpretive panel on the wall so we can still pull it down, turn the space into more of a museum, talk about Jewish life, and also talk about that architectural history, um, seeing those doors hidden back behind the walls. And there it is with the panel up, um, just as a synagogue. Throughout the years, uh, we've had uh, artists work at Eastern State. Um, uh, we've had 72 artists do uh, installations in the building. Virgil Marty, uh, in 1995, recognized that exactly 100 years earlier, Oscar Wilde had been housed in Pentonville, a uh, prison modeled after Eastern State, looks just like it. And so he made a memorial to Oscar Wilde inside of our building in a cell that would have had the exact same dimensions as Wilde's cell. Uh, here we are on the outside with this sunflowers and a recreation of the card that the Marquita Queensbury left that started the, the case that sent Wilde to prison, essentially for homosexuality. Uh, here's the hallway with, filled with lilies and a cell um, dedicated for Oscar Wilde. Um, this, anyone know what Oscar Wilde's last words were? He had the lifelong fascination with wallpaper. Either this wallpaper, wall wallpaper goes or I do. So uh, <laughs> Virgil created wallpaper for Oscar Wilde. 
uh, including quotes from Oscar Wilde, uh, wickedness is a myth by good people to account for the curious attractiveness of others. Um, this is uh, Nick Cassway's piece called Portraits of Inmates in the Death Row Population Sentenced as Juveniles. The piece was designed to age so that the images of these men and women awaiting execution for crimes they committed while they were under the age of 18 um, would actually age over time. They would rust. Um, and then as the inmates were executed, he would seal them so they would stop rusting. At the time, the United States was the only Western nation that would execute, or one of the only Western nations that has capital punishment to begin with, but certainly the only one that would execute inmates for crimes they committed as minors. Um, this is a piece that's currently on view. This is uh, William Cromar's Gitmo. It's a recreation of a Guantanamo Bay cell inside of an Eastern State Penitentiary cell, including the mark for uh, praying towards Mecca. Um, we've updated this for this year um, with some help from our friends at the Sites of Conscience, um, talking about what's happening at Guantanamo Bay today. Elon Sandler's piece, uh, Elon's uh, sister was strangled, murdered, in Toronto in 1995. Elon interviewed his parents and then made doors to a cell block where the doors had been removed for scrap um, with quotes from his parents, what they thought about the experience of how this impacted their family. This one says, we would like to know the person who did this is dead. Uh, we want to tell family members who did not know Simone about her strength and her goodness. We want to know why she was singled out. Was she in the wrong place at the wrong time? And this is um, David Adler's piece currently on view with a nice, a nice piece from the New York Times. Um, about um, prison visitation rooms and how the backdrops for photographs are generally painted by other inmates. Um, there's a whole tradition behind that, and David's piece draws attention to that. In an interpretive plan meeting, though, in 19, oh, sorry, 2010, uh, we had to recognize that while we were working with artists who were doing a wonderful job making these connections, in-house we were doing a pretty poor job. Um, in terms of our tour program, life kind of stopped in 1970 when the inmates left. Um, and I realized that I myself had been the primary catalyst for, for keeping that, that conversation from going forward. I was convinced that visitors would find it um, political, that they would think that we're driving an agenda, I thought, and I was absolutely convinced that visitors don't want to hear about statistics. I just believed it like I believed in gravity. I remember being very condescending with one of our board members and saying, trust me, I'm a museum professional. People don't want to hear about statistics. It's going to put them to sleep. Until finally, 15 years after taking the job, I thought to actually ask some visitors. Um, and who knew? I also started looking more closely at some of those stats, which are absolutely jaw-dropping. Uh, in Pennsylvania, our, our state population has barely changed since 1970, the year that the prison closed. And take a guess in your mind for the, num for the increase in size of our prison population with a more or less stable uh, state population. It's just shy of 700% growth um, with a flat, flat, prison, uh, flat state population. And that's a number that visitors are shocked by. Um, in fact, I found it shocking when I really started looking at these. Um, or that internationally, the United States has the highest rate of incarceration in the world, which a lot of people know. What they don't know is the second highest rate of incarceration is in Rwanda, the, um, coming out of a civil war and a genocide. The highest, the, the European democracies... Uh, which we would think have the most in common with our way of government, all have about one-fifth the rate of incarceration the United States has. These were numbers that um, were troubling the more we stopped and looked at them that we found our visitors were interested in. And I've been talking about this with our staff long enough now they make fun of me for it, but I keep talking about this wedge image of how you design programming. So forgive me for the digression for one second, but I really do believe that you can create programming for small numbers of people, but if you do, it has to be life-changing. It has to be fantastic. It uh, has to be 
really amazing. You can have a summer camp for a handful of kids, but those kids had better really remember that 30 years from now. Um, and on the broader end of the wedge, when you have a larger audience, I think the pressure is less to really make sure that it's a, a transformative experience. And I keep saying, let's go to the broader end of the wedge. And let's keep finding ways to get this to the, the heart of our programming, these kind of messages. Of course, we still try for extraordinary experiences. So we added those stats to the end of our audio tour. So every visitor, 140,000 visitors, almost all of our visitors take the audio tour last year, ended their tour with these basic stats. Um, here we are. We uh, took a year to train our guides to talk about those stats um, and to engage visitors with broad, open-ended questions. Um, we keep recreating and keep updating our um, training materials around these subjects. We invited um, our friends from the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience to come to Philadelphia and train us on true dialogic approach. Um, so here's what we did in 2013. Uh, we had your basic re reading from the letter from Birmingham Jail. Uh, we had our prison food weekend where we created food from different periods in the building's history, but we also brought it forward to what is served in prison today as punishment. They call it Nutriloaf. It's today's version of bread and water, that, food that it's intentionally tastes bad. Prison systems keep getting sued over this and they keep winning um, and they keep serving this. You have to imagine typically it's 21 meals a day, 21 meals in a row uh, in what tastes like gluten-free bread. Um, but we actually served it to our, our visitors. We had a um, family weekend where we brought in inmates who trained dogs in prison, but we actually had the inmates come and meet kids and talk about what it's like to train dogs in prison. Um, what we are not talking about currently is issues of race in prison. It's the one thing that we are still trying to find language um, to develop. We live in a nation where um, the rates of incarceration for African-American men is seven times higher than the rates for white men. Um, or if you go for uh, ages um, 20 to 34, one in nine African-American men are in prison. Um, how, to, how to talk about these numbers without reinforcing negative stereotypes is a tricky process and something that we're looking at. We've been prototyping some language. Here are some comments about this. Uh, the one on the right says, discussion, it's simple. You do the crime, you do the time. It has nothing to do with color. Um, it will never be uncomfortable. Um, is prison too easy for criminals? Is it some sort of status symbol among the minorities? So um, we have some work to think about how to tell these stories uh, without triggering this sort of ugly current in American thinking, but we're serious about doing it. This is our current prototyping question. Uh, we have, um, this is Alex. He's the, um, the newest Muppet uh, whose father's in jail. There are 28 million kids in our country whose parents are in prison, um, and so much so that, that Sesame Street felt they needed to build a, a character around this. Um, moving forward, we're adding voices to our audio tour of people who've recently gotten out of prison, um, soliciting them from our current visitors. Uh, we're adding, we're bringing back an exhibit that asks our visitors to um, leave a confession of something they did that they knew was illegal at the time they did it. And uh, it's called The Criminal Us, uh, inspired by an artist's installation years ago by Troy Richards. Uh, we mix those confessions with the confessions of people who are currently in prison for those crimes, and we don't tell you which is which. Leave you to guess who went to prison and who didn't. Is this an historic site visitor, or is this someone um, serving time in prison today? Um, and we're looking at ways of making those numbers and those graphs more interesting because it's pretty boring to look at just a sign on the wall, although they're, um, they are still pretty jaw-dropping. This is the change in prison population in the United States represented by our floor plan of our building between 1970 and today. And this is what we're actually building for next year. This is a um, set of graphs that are – these are prototypes with graduate students, but um, we're going to build a set of graphs showing the change in incarceration rates um, at a 
larger than human scale. I felt I had to at least admit where the the dark secret of Eastern State, it's easy to not talk about this stuff when you're at a conference far from home, but um, we make the bulk of our money from a Halloween event um, that does in some ways diminish the mission of the organization. It just does. Uh, We trade on we tried not to enforce negative stereotypes and cliches about prison populations, but it's impossible to completely erase that. We want to be honest that we're doing it and that we are diminishing the seriousness with which people approach our building by turning it into an entertainment venue. Um, last year we made $1.7 million net on this event, so we're selling our souls, but we're at least making some money while we do it. Um, so if you're going to sell your soul, at least make sure you get a high price. Um, and we do separate it completely from our daytime experience. If you want to learn about the building's history, come during the day. We don't tell ghost stories during the day. If you want to come at night, we will try our best to scare you, and we won't tell you anything about the building's history. Uh, we are the only haunted house in America, I think, that doesn't have an electric chair scene. And I swear this is true. This, is, this photograph was taken two nights ago at the Sloss Furnace, where they have a haunted house, and there's their electric chair uh, with me posing next to it. But we don't joke about things that are serious to our mission, like electric but we do have images like this that we uh, proliferate. And we do put uh, fiberglass gargoyles in the facade of our National Historic Landmark. So <laughs> I did want to end by, by bragging a little bit, or maybe we're preaching to the converted, but um, our daytime attendance has tripled in the last six years. There is an audience that is not scared of talking about this that actually finds it a lot of our audience said they found it strange we weren't talking about this before. And so all of my years of skepticism and denial that this really had a place in our discussion, I could not have been more wrong. Um, and we have a long way to go, but we're slowly working this into our programming as a, as a keystone in the wide end of that, of that wedge. Thank you very much. <laughs> Good afternoon, and thank you uh, for coming to our session. Again, my name is uh, David Blackburn. I'm the Chief of Cultural Resources and Cultural Programs in Lowell, Massachusetts for Lowell National Historical Park. Uh, Translated from government speak, I'm the Director of Exhibitions, the Director of the Museum Program, and the Director of our uh, Cultural Program. And I'd like to uh, talk about three things in the short 10 minutes that hopefully will add to our um, dialogue. One is a context of who we are, why, we're work, why we were created, uh, what we are trying to do um, in terms of connecting contemporary to um, our themes of the textile industry, and also share something for conversation in this group about um, the challenges of initiating uh, a dialogue program, regardless of whether you're a federal institution or a private nonprofit. Um, In 1978, uh, President Jimmy Carter signed the legislation creating Lowell National Historic Park 
um, quote, to preserve um, certain sites and structures that are historically and culturally the most significant planned industrial city in the United States that symbolizes in physical form the Industrial uh, Revolution. Uh, we are America's first industrialized planned textile city. Um, and 1825, the city is founded. 1823 is when we begin uh, weaving. It is um, industry on um, a giant scale, uh, symbolized by uh, the boot cotton mill where our principal museum is located. Um, Lowell served as the blueprint to New England's uh, massive textile industry. Uh, within the confines of Lowell, um, the, the founders codified for an industrialized America the corporate system, the generation of capital, the creation of labor pool. Um, we innovated the creation of uh, power. There were luminaries from all over the world that came to Lowell to look at its uh, canal system, to look at the uh, kind of uh, uh, utopian uh, patrician way of uh, running a company town with boarding houses for our mill girls adjacent to the places they worked. We were, some say, the Silicon Valley of the 1820s and 30s that uh, through brilliant uh, thinkers, we uh, not only uh, upgraded power generation on turbine technology that you'll still see used today, we also um, innovated uh, improvements to the mechanization of the creation of um, cloth. This is the story um, we tell. It is a story of American industry and capitalism from uh, it, personification of innovation to deinvestment to renewal. To give you an idea of how the creation of the park in 1978 served as a catalyst to the um, community, this is um, the historic boot mill where our museum is located. Um, a parking lot, and what is the H&H &H Paper Company? This is one of the few remaining uh, boarding houses of uh, Lowell, and hopefully I have it. Ta-da! This is what you see today, Boarding House Park and the restored uh, boarding house, which is our second of museums uh, that was originally called the Working People's Exhibit, the Mill Girl and Immigrants Exhibit, plus uh, boarding house, uh, boarding house uh, park. Uh, we are a product of the the seventies with um, in the National Park Service. In the seventies, late sixties, it was a period of time where the Department of Interior and the National Parks were thinking of bringing the parks to the people. For those of you who are from the New York area, who are from uh, Dayton, Akron, or are from uh, San Francisco, Gateway National Recreation Area, Golden Gate National Recreation Area, the Cuyahoga Valley, and as a history park, Lowell National Historic Park were all created within this period of bringing parks to uh, the people. It was also a period for a history park of the growth of a field that we now call public history. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Kathy Stanton's book, The Lowell Experience, uh, Public History in a Post- um, uh, industrial city. I could talk for hours on what we think of her work, but uh, that's for another, another time. The thing that I wanted to show is that we're not typical of many of the historic sites represented in this room. It's not a neat geopolitical line around a building. 
uh, we have a saying that the park is the city and the city is the park. We are um, incorporated into the downtown and the historic core. Um, the Boot Mill Museum is here. You can see the canal systems that are still extant, 5.2 miles with the 33-foot uh, Merrimack Falls. The gray represents the mills that are still in existence, and the green represents our sites. Um, again, the Boot Cotton Mill Museum, the Boarding House Museum, uh, our Suffolk Turbine exhibit, where we not only talk about power generation, but industrialization um, and the natural resources. And then our visitor center um, is here. Keep in mind also of this area. Historically, this was known as the Acre. Uh, back in uh, the 1840s, an acre of land was given to the growing Irish um, community for them to build a church, to build their houses. Today, the acre incorporates this entire area, and it plays an important part of how we connect uh, immigration in our story and the industrialization of the textile industry to um, contemporary issues of immigration um, today. We've been uh, told by Kathy and others that when we talk about um, industrialization that we're creating a false picture, of a linear, a linear picture within immigration of arrival, of um, being introduced into the uh, economic system, acculturation, and then dispersal with the next generation with one group following in behind another, another, and um, another. So what I'd like to try to do very briefly is share with you some of the programs that we're doing to link uh, the contemporary uh, immigrant um, issues to uh, what we talk about within the industrial period. Um, as you found all over New England, we, from the uh, arrival of the Irish potato famine, we welcomed uh, uh, Irish, a uh, huge uh, Quebecois, French-Canadian uh, population, Greeks, Lithuanians, um, Italians, Eastern uh, European uh, Jews, to uh, name a few. Unfortunately, when many visitors come here, we talk about Lowell as the textile city and all of the wonderful, uh, warm, fuzzy stories about the great European immigrants that, that came here. We talk about the disinvestment of the city, the moval of the textile um, industry to the south, and the rebirth of uh, Lowell as a heritage destination and a modern uh, Rust Belt um, community. What we're trying to do now is use these resources um, to connect to the immigrant story, not what I want to talk about is not through exhibitry or not through broad programs to the general public, but to our stakeholders, to our host um, community. We began looking reflectively in 2008 in our 30th um, anniversary and looking to um, our future. And we came across or we created a strategic plan stating that, quote, um, to embrace the immigration story as it continues to evolve in the city by fully engaging the ethnic communities in the planning and presentation and of interpretation, educational programs, events, cultural um, funding, and perhaps even use of and design of space. Very briefly, what we've committed to is going from a model of telling visitors about 
um, the people that worked in Lowell and the people that were a part of our community um, as if we were uh, treating them almost as the other. We were the ones in power. This is what you need to know. To stepping back and creating um, a model where we work collaboratively, we um, provide the instruction on how do you train someone to do an interpretive program. Uh, we will provide the logistics of pulling together a facility, but we turn to our community as those who hold um, the expertise in uh, the subject matters and materials. We are um, hosting the second largest Cambodian uh, population in the United States after Long Beach, California, as a result of the um, evacuation of the Thai refugee camps. We in the park host the largest traditional Cambodian dance troupe outside of uh, Cambodia, um, as you can see up um, here on the left. We've moved from talking about the old line immigrants, as you see with our friends at Cody's Market and Kapekwa Market that's now serving a diverse community, to our new immigrants, connecting them with the story that we've always been a community of um, immigrants and um, immigration. It didn't stop. And we need to care, as our Lowellians did a um, hundred years ago. We have uh, refugees, we have immigrants, we have an entire population that's dealing with the effects of um, genocide, post-traumatic uh, stress uh, disorder. How do we match our strengths with their strengths and work together to create engaging program for our community, meet our mission, and meet the needs um, of the, uh, of the uh, community. In 2013, we're working with a nonprofit, uh, the Cambodian Mutual Assistance Association, to create a tour to highlight the uh, Cambodian business district that has resulted. But the ideas we'll be doing with a park ranger to talk about the history of the commercial district and then our partners from the Cambodian community will talk about the reuse of a European, built, a European immigrant built retail district to uh, the uses of a new um, community. Finally, just to leave you, and this is where um, we can uh, discuss later, is we are not doing dialogue programming. In 2008, we were welcome to be part of the Sites of Conscience um, pilot program with the Immigration Network. Uh, my colleague uh, lost the funding for her job through our partnership with UMass uh, uh, Lowell. Um, and things to think about of doing cultural programming versus dialogue programming is that in retrospect, you can't do this as a one-person show. It is literally not quite impossible, but extraordinarily difficult. You need a forward-thinking management team, and most importantly, as fodder discussion, is that what we found out is you can't force organizational culture change. Yet, how do you nurture organizational culture change to not only allow a cultural programming, but to allow dialogue programming to go even deeper to uh, the questions of immigrants and immigration? Um, and then also um, something that we don't talk about within the context of any of this programming in a society of instant gratification, patience is a virtue. <laughs> Thank you.
everyone. So my name is Troy Peters. I'm the director of programs uh, at the Chicago Cultural Alliance. Let me get my timer straight. Uh, um, and just briefly, the, the, the Cultural Alliance, we're a little different than probably a lot of the institutions here, and definitely on the panel. Um, we're in a consortium of 32 now community-based ethnic museums and cultural centers in the city of Chicago and the, the wider metropolitan region. Um, so we don't have a site. We're, uh, we're a separate nonprofit, but we were founded by and work very closely with our members. Um, and um, the project, and so I'm going to talk about one particular project we work with. We work with our members to do uh, capacity building, advocacy for the sector, but also a lot of um, cross-cultural public programming. Um, and in fact, we kind of were born out of a project that they started with the Field Museum that was very dialogue-based between two communities uh, talking about um, a whole host of themes, um, both kind of sharing the similarities, but very importantly, also talking about the differences that, you know, we have all of these ethnic institutions that, yes, a lot of their, um, they were founded in large measure to demonstrate that uh, they were worthy of, be, you know, they were good Americans and worthy of being accepted as such. But at the same time, they exist as the Polish Museum or the Mexican Museum or, you know, these various museums and thinking about and, and pulling apart kind of why it's important to maintain that, that identity. Um, so, to steal one of Sean's image, a lot of those programs are very good and on that wedge of programming kind of fit in the smaller edge of being very kind of transformative experiences for educators in particular, but we're really trying to push to get that wider audience with something that's similar in terms of a, a kind of um, powerful, powerfully genuine experience. So one of the programs we started along that those lines is um, a tour project um, focusing on one park, one community, but looking at it from the perspective of three uh, cultural community, ethnic communities that have been there over, over time. Um, the three organizations we worked with on this, uh, the Donk House German American Cultural Center, uh, the Polish Museum of America, and the Institute of Puerto Rican Arts and Culture. Um, and the neighborhood where we worked with on this project is called uh, Humboldt Park. Um, there's, a, there's a physical Humboldt Park, and then there's a neighborhood surrounding it. Um, and over that neighborhood's 140-year or so history, uh, it's been the site of more than just these three communities, but these three these three organizations were the ones that wanted to participate, but also happened to have uh, some of the largest kind of uh, made some of the largest impact on the community, um, both in terms of kind of the social life, but also pol the political life. And so, the goal of this tour was not just to was to kind of be an easy entry point. Um, these are cultural institutions. Taking a cultural tour is kind of a 
uh, common understanding, but to take it, you know, to mix in architecture, to mix in kind of the planning, uh, socio-political socio history, but then also add in that cultural history element um, and first-person narrative, first-person stories from, uh, from individual participants, uh, individual organizations. Um, I'll talk very briefly about the background so you'll understand a little more of what I'm talking about, but I'll try not to get too deep into the weeds of the tour so that uh, we have more time for discussion. Um, and, and just so you know, my slides are really just kind of to have some visual, something to keep your attention. I'm not really speaking directly to any of them. Uh, <laughs> um, so. Um, very briefly, uh, Humble Park is a neighborhood on the near northwest side of the city. Um, it today, when it was when it was established in the 1870s or so, it was kind of the western edge of the city, um, and it was established by primarily by German immigrants, um, by by fairly successful German immigrants who were uh, mostly involved with real estate and they were on the Parks Commission, and they, for, in large measure, they developed the community as a, as a real estate venture, and the park as a kind of, they named it after Alexander von Humboldt, uh, a Prussian naturalist who was relatively famous in the 1900s, um, kind of as a means of selling it to other German immigrants. Um, this was in the 1870s, the German immigrants didn't, really established there very strongly except for notably uh, a fair amount of German Jews did settle there. Um, but by the, by the turn of the century, by the early 1900s, the neighborhood was largely a Polish neighborhood, uh, was established as um, a Polish Catholic parish. Um, and the neighborhood and the park, the park specifically became a very important site for Polish um, independence route for uh, at leading up to and just after World War I, it was a kind of a spot for celebrating the new independence of Poland after being not existing on a map for some 300 years. Uh, and then after World War II, it was a, spot, a space to protest the occupation, the Soviet occupation of Poland. Um, and the Polish community was there in large numbers until the 50s and 60s, at which point um, Puerto Rican, a Puerto Rican community came into the area and through a mix of redlining, uh, white flight, and, and other, you know, so the general civil unrest of, of the 60s in Chicago, um, it became predominantly Latino, uh, primarily Puerto Rican, um, and has been so to, to the present day, although even that's changing, and there's some questions and challenges about that. So the tour is really trying to cover that history, but really to talk about how that history impacts the contemporary neighborhood, um, and how those experiences of, the, of those different communities um, are visible and on, on the physical space of the park today, on the physical space of the neighborhood, but also the kind of, um, I don't know, psychological space, for lack of a better phrase, uh, today. Um, and so that, that's the tour in a very, 
very broad sketch. Yeah. Um, I'll just jump to some of the um, learnings we had. It's it's been about it was a it's been about a year and a half, almost two years of a process of doing research, historic research, uh, collecting stories, um, a lot of docent training. These are three institutions that are all museums, but are all small, uh, very small museums, um, small staffs. Um, they do tours of their space largely for their own communities. And so there's, you know, there was a degree of training for a broader audience that we had to do, but also just um, the logistics of doing one tour with three docents sharing their respective points of view and kind of handing that, that process off. Um, so, you know, that was an important thing to work through, but I'll just highlight a couple of important, um, I think, lessons. From the dialogue point of view, the goal is to kind of engage the public attending in more of a discussion, but over the pro development process, one of the important, um, there's been a lot of just dialogue between the organizations that I think has been critical, that's been probably the main uh, success of the, of the project thus far. Um, just having the groups sit together and work together to develop a kind of central theme um, that can tie them all together. Uh, something David mentioned, the, the, whole, the idea of kind of the immigrant progress of moving through. Uh, Humboldt Park has traditionally been seen as one of these uh, transitional neighborhoods that people, immigrants land there, um, they make, they establish themselves, make some money, and then move on to someplace better. Um, and that for you know, in general, but particularly for the German and Polish communities, that was kind of an accepted wisdom. Whereas for the Puerto Ricans, who in the last 20 years have been faced with um, a, a process of gentrification or a, a threat of gentrification and, and process of it as well, have really um, sought to push against that notion and to push against the notion that they can't establish themselves in that community and make that com make you know that 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 the nature of immigrate of migration of, of, of is to move on or to be pushed out and rather to say we can kind of we can make an effort to make this place a, cult a Puerto Rican cultural space so that required us to work through a theme that you know in certain ways is maybe more general just in terms of uh, exploring the impacts that different communities have on one space and how those how those um, legacies continue in the present or are visible in the present, um, but it also I think was an important process to work through for for the communities to understand each other. Um, at the same time, there were places where there wasn't a kind of consensus that we could reach, um, particularly the the Polish. I would say um, their perspective was that they, especially um, the, the man who was there, the representative, he was from the neighborhood, and his case of leaving, his family's case of leaving the neighborhood wasn't necessarily, oh, we're going to a better place. They almost felt like they couldn't stay there. They were redlined out. They couldn't get loans to stay there. And so, you know, for him, there was a notion of a, a kind of disagreement with the Puerto Rican perspective that they're getting, that they 
um, that it is their space. That he his perspective was that it was not your space before, and that and, and it's kind of turnabout is fair play, and so um, there's there there was through the conversation through the discussion a challenge that really I don't know that we ever came to agreement on that point that the two the two groups came to any agreement, but I think there was an important. Um, understanding that, that at least they were able to kind of voice their opinions and perspectives on that issue in a way that I don't think, especially Jan, I don't think he had been able to before. And, you know, I don't know about, I, as far as the writer community, it hasn't manifest in a, a larger understanding yet, but certainly between those two organizations, they have a much stronger relationship, I think, for that process. Uh, and finally, very briefly, uh, from the German perspective, the opportunity in doing the research about this community that was a little bit distant from the living memory of the members of that organization um, and being a, having to focus because there weren't a lot of German residents who ha spent a lot of time there focusing on the, ger the, the um, German Jewish uh, immigrants who, who lived there, that having to be their focus, it actually gave them the opportunity to talk about German Jews and their relationship with ethnic German immigrants in Chicago in a way that um, they are very, very nervous about. I think, understandably, in their sight, they're nervous about talking about Nazis. They're nervous about talking about the Holocaust. In World War II, in general, it's a very scary su subject for them. So uh, you know, getting out of their space, getting into this other space, gave them the opportunity to begin to broach a, uh, an issue that is complicated for them. Um, as far, just very quickly, as far as the challenges, uh, of the many challenges that we face, you know, of course there are the logistics of training three different organizations and coordinating schedules to get on one, to do one tour repeatedly, but um, also it is part of our process to really have these kinds of projects driven by the first voice of our, our members and not tell them what to say. And so. Um, you know, that just requires the right staff. It requires a, a whole different kind of process and patience to get to not to, to both get that kind of perspective out, but also to keep it directed and keep it moving. Um, I would say the biggest thing, the, the, in, in terms of content, the biggest challenge has been to really um, push the organizations to talk about the kind of local stories and some of the things I think they're more that the tour format hasn't we haven't figured out how to get the tour format with the wider audience that they're not necessarily as comfortable with who the people on the tour are every time to really have some of the conversations that are a little more nuanced and complicated about you know, um, kind of divisions within the within the respective communities between class between political orientation um, or you know, issues of, of riots and the results of riots and civil unrest, things like this, it's, it's still been difficult for the communities to really speak, I think, as genuinely as they can, as I know they have in other venues uh, in, this, in, this, in this venue. And in general, I guess that is that, that that's the, the next, it's more of an opportunity than, the cha than a challenge, but I think going forward, it's really working. We've had several, we've had a mix of attendees. We've done it four times over this year and we're planning more for next year. 
Uh, actually, we have one tomorrow that I'm heading have to head back for, um, and um, um, we've had several. We've had many people who are not from the community, but who are just inter interested in this kind of thing in Chicago. But several also who are from the community, and I think the opportunity, but the challenge as well, is to try to develop ways to draw out their stories and add those kinds of that that layer into the tour as well so that it's a more expansive um, um, story of, of this community. So that is a very rushed version of what our project is, but I want to make sure there's time for um, conversation and I'd be happy to talk about any other things that I missed or were confusing in the questions. Thank you. dialogic programming that we will be piloting 
um, starting um, in 2014 and 2015. But um, again, the point that you make that we tend to think dialogic programming in terms of this very narrow definition, if we're more all um, encompassing, um, it makes it a richer, a richer dialogue uh, with you and also really shows that um, there's more than one way to Representatives here, so talk. <laughs> I, would, I would say to that, you know, in our in our network, we have, as I said, um, ethnic museums and cultural centers because a lot of our, you know, maybe two thirds of our members are traditional museums, but a good third or more are community centers or social service agencies actually that do significant cultural programming, and most of those. So we are continually trying to build that. We've got kind of this two-headed hydra. We've got uh, 
uh, programming that's celebrating brand new refugees, and then we've got dial-up programming that's largely attended by our members, who are usually multi-generation Texans, mostly white Texans. So those conversations, you could imagine, are quite different, um, depending um, depending on what the, the makeup of the group is. Um, so in my pipe dream, those two communities come together and work with each other, um, but we're still trying to figure out how to make that happen. There's something uh, to, to be said, and, and sometimes the most obvious points aren't lost, but uh, for as excited as you may be, I want to meet with these people, I want to uh, uh, get to know them, initiate dialogue, is um, trust. This is where patience comes comes in, is that for as much as we desire to do something, if we come in uh, in our uniforms, and if you can imagine me wearing the flat hat and the polyester, uh, gray and green, that that's even a more difficult uniform to walk um, uh, through and into, let alone something uh, just, just like this. We sometimes tend to forget that even when we're talking with trusted partners who are involved with a cultural nonprofit or um, uh, a social service um, agency, we, they may be looking at us as we are the ones coming to them as the ones in power, and we're coming to you looking, looking for something. What we're working on, there's an organization in Seattle called the Cross-Cultural Healthcare Program that um, the Lowell Community Health Center has been very uh, vested in. And we truly believe if we're going to continue to build uh, meaningful cultural programs and build a dialogue program, we need to train our staff in uh, being culturally competent. That um, it's a very, that, and our managers too, that it's, that in building trust, we need to understand that in our Western culture, the eye contact might be uh, important, but that suddenly if you're trying to meet with a partner and they keep looking down, you may be taking that the wrong way. Um, there's, there's many steps that need to be taken, but we found for as much as management says, build partnerships, build partnerships, build partnerships, it's easier said than done, and the very first step is finding um, a trusted advisor and building a level of trust and safety to move um, forward with uh, then the foundations of the major things of partnership. I'm gonna try and frame this into a question. Um, so Sean talked a lot about, or just at the end, about this program that obviously on the web is programming is reaching a lot of people and making a lot of money, but it's more edutainment. You were very clear that you don't, that the prison coaches and talked about that. So how do we
know the the Trippy Food Weekend where we recreated Meatloaf and actually did a sample of it for our visitors. That was kind of press, and we were packed all weekend. Um, and there's something really very surprising about that. To actually go to a site and have them give you a piece of food that's going to be as delicious as um, punishment. That was an example for us. I think that was us kind of at our best. But we 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 also have a lecture series. Um, Done, we're not done with, with trying to get that, trying to figure out a way to attract an audience with a program like that. But that was an example of the very narrow end of the wedge, like 30 people, and it was not worth the amount of time we put into it. Um, we're going to keep plugging through some of the year on that, but I don't have a good answer for you. I, it's, um, but there, no one to see it. You know, we all know the museums that have the sort of, like obscenity.
they come back for a family program, uh, they've told their, their friends. We've seen folks that start at um, the uppermost level of, of, of the wedge, but the key is that they're intrigued enough to want to go um, deeper. And the, the, the difficult thing is, is when you have limited resources and you're looking at families and community and uh, English as a second language and all of these um, different groups, how do you create that? But creating an entree, we, we've seen it with some of our um, programming. We now have a core audience from the community who trusts us and has engaged with us in talking about increasingly difficult uh, subject matter. But it's a group of maybe 30, um, 30 people. But it's 30 people we weren't talking to uh, four years ago.
speak at a conference, give a quick stand up, and you show all your best stuff, and you flip through, and then you know you sit down. Um, I don't want to say that I'm sure that you would all agree that we're not experts in this, and we've we've made so many mistakes over the years, and all the best ideas we've stolen from colleagues. So like, I'm here to steal your ideas. Um, Find <laughs> the very best and bring them back. But I've got a really good boss who
like this cultural mix of things. They don't care about the Cuban festival and the Puerto Rican festival. They really want something very new, which they're not getting yet in Latin America, which we're trying to figure out. We're not there yet, but we're trying to figure it out. So some of your other comments will resonate with some of the rumors I might have. Someone said, we'll give you $2 million to cancel Halloween. We have to really think about that because we, if we look at the number of people who have come to the Learn About through Halloween, it's something like within 20% of people. We have a very young audience on the Soros site, which is actually a very mixed audience generation. It's a white audience, but that's, and that's a problem that they're very much very interested. But we have a nice, healthy demographic, and there's young people and most of them about through Halloween. And a lot of them are coming back, and they're going to see giant but I, it's, I'm with you. I, I, 
Thank you all very much. We'll stick around if anyone wants to.